Welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. I'm joined by my colleague, my comrade, Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm very good, Michael. Thanks for having me on. We have a lot of meaty topics for you tonight. We're talking Ukraine, Russia, China, Arnold Schwarzenegger, P&O Ferries. More horrific behavior by the Metropolitan Police. It just gets worse and worse. And we have, a, I suppose, kind of a good news story. The Telegraph and Ian Austin were forced into a humiliating apology. We'll be giving you the, the blow by blow of that development. We'll start the show as we often do with the latest developments in the war on Ukraine. The Russians haven't advanced much since our last show, but they have ramped up their air attacks on certain key cities. Mariupol in the southeast in particular has taken heavy bombing with reports that 80% of the city's buildings have now been damaged or destroyed. After a missile attack on a theater sheltering civilians in the city, 130 have now been rescued, though more remain trapped. That's according to Mariupol authorities. There have also been missile attacks further west, targeting a facility for repairing military aircraft near Lviv. This is being read as a threat to the west that any military shipments to Ukraine will be considered targets. With respect to political developments, yesterday it was revealed that the Kremlin told President Erdogan of Turkey the latest iteration of their demands. The BBC's John Simpson spoke to Erdogan's chief advisor, Ibrahim Kalin, and writes, The first four demands are, according to Mr. Kalin, not too difficult for Ukraine to meet. Chief among them is an acceptance by Ukraine that it should be neutral and should not apply to join NATO. Ukraine's President Zelensky has already conceded this. There are other demands in this category, which mostly seem to be face-saving elements for the Russian side. Ukraine would have to undergo a disarmament process to ensure it wasn't a threat to Russia. There would have to be protection for the Russian language in Ukraine. And there is something called denazification. John Simpson says there were other demands that would be harder to meet. He writes, Mr. Kalin was much less specific about these issues, saying simply that they involved the status of Donbass in eastern Ukraine, parts of which have already broken away from Ukraine and stressed their Russianness and the status of Crimea. The assumption is that Russia will demand that the Ukrainian government should give up territory in eastern Ukraine. That will be deeply contentious. The other assumption is that Russia will demand that Ukraine should formally accept that Crimea, which Russia illegally annexed in 2014, does indeed now belong to Russia. How negotiations progress will depend on how each party thinks it can improve its hand over the coming weeks. And on that front, a key player could be China. That's because we know Russia's war is not going to plan, and so they are leaning on the world's second largest economy to bail them out. The FT reported on Monday that Russia had requested military aid from China, to which a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson responded saying, the US has been spreading disinformation targeting China on the Ukraine issue with malicious intentions. China has so far failed to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Xi Jinping shares Putin's suspicion of NATO and historic American aggression, and he would have been happy to see the Western powers get a bloody nose. But the drawn-out, bloody nature of the war has put China in a difficult position, and there are some signs that the Chinese leadership are getting ready to change course. In a break from its usual pro-Russian coverage, the American branch of the state-controlled CGTN showed a clip of 10 Ukrainian civilians who were killed by Russian bombing. Ian Bremer is president of Eurasia Group, and he said that if this is shown on China's domestic reporting, this is a game-changer. 
Unfortunately, that CGTN clip was deleted. But on the plus side, James Palmer, who's deputy editor at Foreign Policy magazine, suggested the shift in tone had been visible to Chinese domestic audiences as well as international ones. So we've taken James's tweet because he understands this, this, this Chinese text, which we don't. But what you can see there is, is Chinese news reports, which are in the background showing you bombed out Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, which is the kind of images that the Chinese state-controlled media were not showing their publics throughout most of this war. They've been tending to take a pro-Russian line. Aaron, could we be about to see a shift from China? How significant would that be? And, and what would you do in this situation if you were Xi Jinping? So if I was the most senior person in a, in a closed autocracy, relatively insulated from popular pressure, what would I do to my previously authoritarian, now tyrannical friend, Vladimir Putin? That's a really tough question, Michael. I don't see how it's in China's national interest to, to, to coalesce with Russia on this. But then we're not in the corridors of power. I think one thing the two share, both Russia and China, is they looked at the United States and its response to Afghanistan last year and probably came to similar conclusions, which is that the United States is this hyperpower, this preeminent military force, which can do broadly what it likes, broadly where it likes. That was over. And for Putin, that obviously crystallized and gave rise to what we're seeing in the last several weeks in Ukraine. China, I think, like I say, came to different conclusions, but hasn't, hasn't acted on them. But I think it did make the debate around China seeking to retake Taiwan by military force, if necessary, a more live debate. Because like I say, it, it showed a weaker United States than at any point really since the Second World War. That's my opinion. So they were probably in a similar place a month ago. However, I don't think that the Chinese are in any way interested in being cut off from the, the global economy. By the way, they can't be. <laughs> Not in a way remotely like, the, like the, the case with the Russian Federation in recent weeks anyway. So they're not looking for economic isolation. They understand that the US is in decline. I think they probably put more weight in Russia as a geopolitical ally than we realize in the West because it has immense resources, immense farming land. It's the heart of Eurasia. It's a huge border for them that they've got to protect. So there are shared interests there. But I don't think they want to be on the wrong side of a reinvigorated United States, European Union, NATO, and quote-unquote Western alliance. Something China's been very good at in the last... 10 to 15 years is becoming, if not the major export, a major export. In many of, the, in many of these cases, it's the major exporter to countries in ASEAN, uh, Japan, South Korea, obviously deeply entrenched economic ties with Australia. It doesn't want to give those up just to be on the right side of, of Vladimir Putin. So it's an interesting one. Are, are they going to go in, in for a penny and for a pound with the Russians? I suspect they won't. But there's lots of moving parts here. And like I say, you have to return to that fundamental point, which is that Putin's doing what he's doing now because he thinks America is historically weak. China probably agreed with that. Maybe they still do. Uh, but that was certainly the case until at least a couple of weeks ago. And I think what's, what's interesting here is it, it seems clear to me that she had foresight of what Vladimir Putin was going to do. You know, there, there was that meeting before the Winter Olympics. They sort of met together and they said, we are friends right up until the end. You know, we, we, there's a rizzler between us. That's not exactly the, the phrase they use, but they're saying we are strong allies. But I think, I presume that Xi Jinping believed what Putin thought 
which to be fair is exactly also what US intelligence for. It's so it's, it's interesting in this case that all the superpowers had exactly the same intelligence, which was essentially that Russia was going to go into Ukraine, the Ukrainian army was going to fall in about two days, and then it would be a fait accompli whereby Russia got to install a friendly government, a government friendly to them. Now, I think what's interesting about sort of the Chinese perspective on these things, we often talk on the show about how there's this real double standard when it comes to sort of like Western liberal discourse. Whereas when when we invade someone, we sort of dress it up in all of this language. Oh, this was, you know, it was obviously a mistake that we invaded Iraq, but we were well-intentioned. It was a mistake that we invaded Afghanistan, but we were well-intentioned. Maybe it was a mistake we bombed Libya, but it was well-intentioned. Now, China, and I think basically the rest of the world, just sees someone bombing a country that's very far away from them, you know, quite rightly. I think that's probably a more objective perspective. So when everyone is, you know, giving all of this, this moral outrage, how could this possibly happen in the 21st century? You know, the Chinese aren't looking at it like that, rightly, because they're like, this, this kind of thing happens in the 21st century all the time. But I do think that what Xi Jinping was hoping, I suppose, was that, you know, he, he wasn't going to break up with, he wasn't going to sort of end his fairly useful relationship with Russia over a very short war where he installs a friendly government in Ukraine. But if this is a long war, and you know, you've know you seen a response from the West, which is way more united than anyone was expecting, these sanctions are way stronger than anyone was, was expecting, I can see how this is now just a massive headache for the Chinese leadership, because they're backing a guy who is fighting a war which he's probably going to lose. He's not going to achieve his political aims here. What do you mean by lose, Michael? Now, what do I mean by lose? I don't think he's going to achieve his... So it's, it, Vladimir Putin's political aims were, he thought the Ukrainian government was going to fall in a couple of days. He could install a friendly government. He would get some kudos back at home like he did when he annexed Crimea. He would have a few sanctions from the West, but they'd sort of be post facto punitive sanctions just to show, oh, look, we, we don't approve of what you do, but we're not going to declare economic war on you. He'd collected all of those central bank assets, those reserves, so that any sanctions he'd actually be quite prepared to deal with. Then what happened is that the Ukrainians fought back hard. His army didn't perform well. Suddenly, this is a full-blown war. The West declares economic warfare on Russia. Now those sanctions you know, really matter because those reserves have been basically wiped out because we froze their central bank assets. And the Ukrainians out. I mean, are they're, united they're, in they're hatred not, of, of, of Russia. Well, no, they're still servicing their debt. That's the main thing in the short term. I agree with you. It can't carry on for much longer, but you know they're still being able to service their debts. The ruble rallied in the last couple of days. That's important to say. If this war ended tomorrow, you can see how the Russians could walk it back to something resembling normality, right? And I disagree with Putin's not getting what he wants, because I think if you said at the start of the year, let's say, and it won't happen because I think territorial integrity of Ukraine is a, it's a red line for them. But let's say there was recognition of, of, of Russian Crimea, and you get, you know, Luhansk and Donetsk as these independent republics again recognized by Ukraine. I think that's a win for Putin because what it says is fundamentally in the 21st century, you can alter political realities to the extent which you can you can literally change borders through force, through wars of aggression. And if that's then agreed on by all parties, and I don't think it will be, by the way, I think that's a win for Putin. I think that's a, that's a huge precedent, Michael, in, in, in international affairs. They're servicing their debt. The rubles rallied. If this war ends next week, there probably isn't the kind of long-term economic damage that people are talking about. It's not going to end next week. And I think for me as well, he's not achieved his strategic objectives. We'll, we'll see. I think if the result of this, and I don't think it will be the result because the territorial integrity of Ukraine is a red line for Zelensky. But if you got recognition of Russian Crimea, Luhansk and Donetsk as um, independent republics, 
what that says is that in the 21st century, military force can be used to change borders and there will be concessions made by the global community in response. That's exactly what happened with the League of Nations in Italy in the 1930s in Ethiopia or the Japanese in Manchuria. That has not been the norm in international affairs since 1945. So if Putin comes out of this, having changed borders with the consent of international, ultimate consent of international or the acknowledgement of international actors as a result of a war of aggression, that's massive. That is massive, Michael. So the idea that he hasn't got everything he wants, I don't think that's to say, well, it's therefore a failure. And by the way, I think it's an appalling precedent. I'm not saying this with any sort of sort of positivity about, about what would happen, but it's an appalling precedent if all of a sudden we're saying, actually, belligerent wars of aggression can lead to an extension of borders and a changing of geopolitical realities. That now is a thing again, by the way. Hasn't been a thing for about 80 years. That's, or oh, 90 years actually, like I say, you go back to the 30s, you go back to Sudetenland with the Nazis, you go back to Italy, Ethiopia, you go back to J Japan, Imperial Japan with Manchuria. That's a new political reality. See, the idea that, oh, well, that wouldn't be a big deal, or Putin wouldn't have, you know, got something significant there, I have to disagree with that conclusion. Do you not think he could have done that in a less costly way, though? Because, I mean, what I thought Putin was going to do in the first place was, I suppose, potentially send Russian troops into the areas of Donetsk and Luhansk, which had already declared some degree of independence. And then that would be a bargaining chip to potentially get Ukraine to recognize Crimea as part of Russia and, and those two you know, proto-states as, as, as real states. And he probably could have done that with, while avoiding the central bank assets of Russia being frozen and you know, basically the whole, the whole economy collapsing because every single global business has, has exited their, their market. I just feel like, and he wouldn't have had you know, 6,000 dead troops already, or however many there are, obviously, it's quite hazy what knowledge we have about this. Do you not think he, he could have just achieved that without invading? And the reason he invaded is because he had terrible assumptions about what would happen when he did. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not one of these people who says this is all a master plan from Vladimir Putin. I mean, you look at, look at changing sentiment in Sweden and Finland, or particularly Finland, towards NATO membership, German rearmament, the popularity of Zelensky, like you say, thousands of dead Russians, economic hit. This is not, you know, 16-dimensional chess from Vladimir Putin. He's really screwed up. My point is, even if there are these reduced concessions, I think that is a major blow to the international order as we've known it for 90 years. And, and that, has to be, that has to be taken seriously. If as a result of this, even the recognition of Crimea, Michael, right, even the recognition of Crimea as Russian, if that results from an illegal war of aggression, is a major precedent in the 21st century. Major, major, major. What does that say to dozens of countries, some, some in Europe, by the way, about the efficacy of violence if you want to change your borders? And many, many countries have irredentist claims. Many countries, right? Uh, and, and some very similar to what we see with, uh, with Eastern Ukraine. Local people, separatists, who may want to be part of this former motherland, they may also, we can look at non-state actors, they may also think, well, look, it worked for, it worked for people in, uh, in eastern Ukraine. Not that I'm saying everybody in eastern Ukraine universally thinks that, but that can be a very effective prototype all of a sudden. So in terms of, in terms of the, the, the global norms that it would challenge, it's huge. No, it's not everything Putin wants. But again, you know, the economic damage from Crimea was extraordinary, Michael, after 2014. If you look at household purchasing power of the average Russian in rubles after 2014, it is smashed. You know, and maybe actually that comparatively speaking, the hit from this isn't as bad as Crimea. I don't think that'll be the case, by the way. I think because this isn't going to end tomorrow, 
we're in real speculation mode here, right? These are red lines for Zelensky. You're not going to get the international community saying, okay, Russia, you can have Crimea. My point is, in the event of that happening, which is far less than what Putin initially wanted, still major. Uh, I think the biggest problem for him is the anti-war movement domestically. And I'm not just saying that as a leftist who sort of venerates social movements. I think what we've seen in the West over the last 20 years is that once you lose the consent of a domestic population to execute foreign policy in the way that you like, you're really hamstrung, which has been a major problem for American empire, right? The reason why it left Afghanistan is because you had the, the electorate saying, we don't want to be there anymore. You had somebody like Trump go to you know, Republican states, which have been very pro-military, still are very pro-military, but want the US out of Afghanistan. And so there is a possibility you create a situation of public, which is no longer consenting to the kind of foreign policy choices and military deployments that the Kremlin would like to see. I think that's the, the worst long-term problem for Putin. I think the other stuff, okay, well, what? There's massive equity in, in Russian businesses. Now that BP's gone, we'll own it instead. We'll sell our oil to somewhere else. It'll, we won't get the same rates of return, but global oil prices are really high. That's another thing to consider, Michael. Global instability necessarily favors Russian energy exports. There are incentives for Russia to behave in ways which enhance chaos on the, on the global stage. Uh, there are incentives for Russia not to address climate change because A, it exports all these hydrocarbons. B, it's going to actually have more arable farming land in a world of two degrees warming. And it also gets a whole new coast to move to trade goods uh, across the north because the Arctic ice cap melts. So there are some very strange incentives for Russia, which don't exist for the rest of us, generally speaking, which I think have to be taken into account. And, and just to confirm, the big problem, I, I think, in the long term, if this drags on, is a powerful anti-war sentiment among, among the Russian populace. Next story. One common reaction to Putin's war on Ukraine has been to demonize everything Russian. That's included EA Sports, removing the Russian football team from the FIFA PlayStation game. Cardiff Philharmonic removing Tchaikovsky from their performances, and even a mustard museum in Wisconsin removing Russian mustard from their display. A photo from the museum was posted on Twitter informing visitors the Russian mustard would only be returned once the invasion of Ukraine was over and Russia recognised the respected, recognised and respected the sovereign nation of Ukraine. Someone who's taken a different approach to persuading Russians is Arnold Schwarzenegger, the weightlifter, movie star, and former California governor. He's released an anti-war video directed to the people of Russia, which professes his love for all things Russian. He starts the film by describing the moment when a 14-year-old Schwarzenegger met Russian weightlifter Yuri Vlasov. He goes on to say this. I went home and they put his photo above my bed to inspire me when I started lifting weights. My father told me to take down that picture and to find a German or Austrian hero. He got really angry and we argued back and forth. He didn't like Russians because of his experience in the Second World War. You see, he was injured at Leningrad, where the Nazi army that he was part of did vicious harm to the great city and to its brave people. But I did not take the photograph down, no, because it didn't matter to me what flag Yuri Vlasov carried. My connections to Russia didn't stop there, by the way. Oh, it actually deepened when I traveled there with bodybuilding and for my movies and met all my Russian fans. And on one of those trips, I remember, I met Yuri Vlasov once again. 
It was in Moscow during the filming of Red Heat, which was the first American movie allowed to film in Red Square. Now, he and I spent the whole day together. He was so thoughtful, so kind, and so smart, and, of course, very giving. He gave me this beautiful blue coffee cup, and ever since then, I've been drinking my coffee out of every morning. <laughs> now, the reason why I'm telling you all of these things is that ever since I was 14 years old, I've had nothing but affections and respect for the people of Russia. The strength and the heart of the Russian people have always inspired me. And that is why I hope that you will let me tell you the truth about the war in Ukraine and what is happening there. If you want to get a hearing in Russia, this makes so much more sense than making out that everything Russian is inherently evil. If someone starts out talking about how they respect my country, especially if there's someone I already respect, I'm going to be way, way more inclined to give them a hearing. That's what Schwarzenegger is, is doing there. And once he's got that hearing, he doesn't mince his words. You see, Ukraine did not start this war. Neither did nationalists or Nazis. Those in power in the Kremlin started this war. This is not the Russian people's war. No. As a matter of fact, let me tell you, what you should know is that the 141 nations at the UN voted that Russia was the aggressor and called for it to remove its troops immediately. Only four countries in the entire world voted with Russia. That is a fact. See, the world has turned against Russia because of its actions in Ukraine. Whole city blocks have been flattened by Russian artillery and bombs, including a children's hospital and a maternity hospital. Three million Ukrainian refugees, mainly women, children and elderly, fled their country. And many more are trying to seek to get out. It is a humanitarian crisis. Because of its brutality, Russia is now isolated from the society of nations. You're also not being told the truth about the consequences of this war on Russia itself. I regret to tell you that thousands of Russian soldiers that have been killed. They have been caught between Ukrainians fighting for their homeland and the Russian leadership fighting for conquest. Massive amounts of Russian equipment have been destroyed or abandoned. The destruction that Russian bombs are raining down upon innocent civilians has so outraged the world that the strongest global economic sanctions ever taken have been imposed on your country. Those who don't deserve it on both sides of the war will suffer. The BBC report that video has gone viral on Russian social media. They don't, I think they're suggesting it went viral on, on Telegram because as I understand it, Russia doesn't have access to Twitter at the moment. Aaron, what did you make of that video? I thought it was pitch, pitch perfect and also quite different to the way that many people in public life have been talking about Russia and Russians recently. Yeah, so I think there's a few things here, Michael. First of all, you're right. It's a, it's a masterclass in, in political communications. And that is the sort of video which you can imagine, you know, blue collar, Joe the plumber, whatever their name is in Russia, would watch and, and feel moved by it. It's very moving. It has a sort of emotional congruence immediately because like you say, he's talking about his passion for a particular Russian athlete, Stalingrad, which is a shared experience that Europeans have with Russians, and Austria was absolutely on the wrong side of that. So I think that's really powerful. It's, a, like I said, a great piece of, of political theatre, and I'm sure he means all of it. I'm sure it's all true. 
but I think sort of analyzing it and sort of stepping back a bit, you know, celebrities are the heavy artillery in information war. There's no two ways about it. And if I can sort of be a little bit of an asshole here, Michael, um, apologies for the language, Arnold Schwarzenegger was a governor in California when America was waging a war of aggression, which was illegal, by the way, just like Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, he was a Republican governor in California twice when they did that. He didn't have any reservations about it. In fact, he he backed John McCain as the 2008 candidate, who you know at least Obama was making a nod to being something of an anti-war figure. He he lived that you know he didn't live up to those uh, expectations. He lived down on them, proverbially, but at least he was saying the right things. And Schwarzenegger, even in 2007, vetoed the possibility of a referendum in California on wh whether or not the U.S. should bring troops back from Iraq. And so I suppose for me, Michael, this hugely intelligent man, very charismatic. I mean, he comes across very well in that video. I personally like him. I think he's a very affable person. He, there's a reason why he's one of the biggest film stars of all time. He's incredibly likable. I just wish, Michael, that moral clarity was there when hundreds of thousands of people would ultimately die as a result of the foreign policy choices made by the political party of which he's a member, made by a country and government which prosecuted an illegal war in the name of him and his fellow American citizens. I wish that moral clarity was there then. And so that's not to say, oh, well, it's a pointless video. It's a fantastic video. I'm really happy he made it. But I think it does tell you something quite important. Why aren't these figures there when their country is wrong? And I, I think for me, Michael, to finish it, that to me is the hallmark of moral clarity and rectitude and I think an exemplary soul, really. I think somebody that can stand up and say, look, it's not popular, but I think we're doing the wrong thing in this country right now, which some Americans did in 2003, but Arnold Schwarzenegger wasn't one of them. No, that's a good point, actually. Because also, I mean, the, the narrative arc of the video, obviously we only showed you a couple of minutes of it, it's nine minutes long. What is quite impressive about it is he doesn't speak from this moral high ground because he's, you know, because he's talking about this war where his father was on the side of the Nazis is sort of saying, you know, like it's, it's, I'm not saying I'm speaking to you from the side of goodness against the side of evil. Like mm -hmm. all of our countries have been, been involved in terrible things. And then he also in it says, and I spoke out as well when my country was in the wrong, when there was an insurrection um, at, at the Capitol Hill when, when Donald Trump lost that election. But you're right, the big gaping hole in that video is Iraq because Arnold Schwarzenegger backed it. And to be fair, you know, I hope this video is effective, effective in changing Russian public opinion. But you know what would have been more effective? It would be using your status as a movie star and governor of California and a Republican governor of California to speak out against the Iraq war back in 2003. That's a war he would have actually had a much better chance of stopping than Russia's illegal and aggressive war on, on Ukraine. So, yeah, I agree, I agree with you on this, Aaron. I hope that as many people as possible see that Arnold Schwarzenegger video and take it to heart because it's absolutely right when it comes to Russia's war of aggression on Ukraine. Praise him for this video and then condemn him for not having condemned an invasion which he could have had more chance of stopping. Next story. This is the moment that a P&O ferries boss sacked 800 workers on a video call. The company has made the decision that its vessels going forward will be primarily crewed by a third-party crew provider. Therefore, I am sorry to inform you that this means your employment is terminated 
with immediate effect on the grounds of redundancy. Your final day of employment is today. Workers were then immediately asked to disembark the ships they were working on, and in some cases, contracted security officers with handcuffs were sent on board to intimidate them. At least one captain refused. Eugene Favier of the Pride of Hull instructed his staff to draw up the gangway. This prevented hired security from entering the ship and triggered an occupation that lasted more than five hours. P&O justified the brutal move by suggesting the restructuring and redundancies were necessary due to its operating at a $100 million annual loss. But the company that owns P&O, that's Dubai-based DP World, increased their profits in the first half of last year by 52%, jumping from $313 million to $475 million. Its turnover increased from $4 billion to nearly $5 billion. The brutal manner of the sacking, for a while at least, appeared to unite politicians against P&O bosses. That included Minister for Maritime Robert Courts. He made this statement in Parliament. Let me now turn to the issue of the seafarers, Mr Deputy Speaker. These are hard-working, dedicated staff who have given years in service to P&O. The way they have been treated today is wholly unacceptable. And my thoughts are first and foremost with them. Reports of workers being given zero notice and escorted off their ships with immediate effect, while being told cheaper alternatives would take up their roles, shows the insensitive way in which p have approached this issue, a point I have made crystal clear to p management when I spoke to them earlier this afternoon. As I told Peter Hebblethwaite, I am extremely concerned and frankly angry at the way workers have been treated today by P&O. I'm frankly angry. If you have to explicitly say you're angry, it makes it seem a little bit less sincere than it otherwise would. And I mean, it wasn't sincere, was it? Because it turns out the maritime minister, in fact, had prior notice that P&O were going to let go of their workers. And he didn't tell anyone, or at least his boss didn't tell anyone. On Thursday, RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch made that point on LBC. Well, our members have been sacked brutally by a paramilitary security force coming onto their vessels, their place of work and turfing them out. The company has acted illegally directly. I've just been on a call with the shipping minister, Robert Quartz, and told him that. He knew this last night, by the way, and didn't tell anyone. The Department for Transport knew this was happening, and they knew they were going to break the law. The way that you break the law is by not informing the Department of Business, Industry and uh, Science these days, or the Transport Minister. They have to fill out what's called a HR1 form to make redundancies. They have to give 45 or 90 days notice of that consultation and you work through with the trade unions and the reps what you're going to do about this situation. They have flagrantly broken the law deliberately. The government knew they were going to do it last night. He said that in Parliament. So- he just said that to me on a Zoom call. On Thursday, The Guardian reported that Boris Johnson's official spokesperson said, we weren't given any notice to this. But today, the story has changed. According to The Guardian again, Johnson's spokesperson confirmed on Friday that senior officials at the Department for Transport had first been informed about the firm's plan on Wednesday evening, but had kept the information within a small group because of concerns about commercial sensitivity. So 
Due to concerns about commercial sensitivity, the transport secretary didn't tell the prime minister that 800 people were about to be sacked. I, I don't think that adds up whatsoever. And if he didn't tell you, that's, you know, that's a problem with your government. We should go into some detail. In that LBC clip we showed you, the RMT boss suggested the redundancies are illegal. And there has been a fair amount of confusion surrounding this point, and especially what the consequences of that would imply. This was employment barrister Daniel Barnett on LBC. It is illegal. Of course it is. It may um, be effective in that the dismissals are effective. They've taken effect, but it is unlawful in the sense that the employees will be entitled to certain amounts of compensation. And there's three sets of compensation they'll be entitled to get. It doesn't come to a huge amount, I'll tell you that much. First of all, notice pay. That might be a little bit for new employees, much more for long-serving employees. Second of all, a statutory redundancy payment, again, less for new employees, generally a cap of about £10,000 on that for very long-serving employees. And also something called a protective award, which is an award that tribunals give if there hasn't been proper consultation before a dismissal. And that's up to 90 days pay, so effectively another three months pay for everybody. But what I imagine P&O have done here is they've taken a calculated, cynical view that it's cheaper to get the new agency labour in today and pay this compensation a year down the line, because that's how long it takes for a case to get to court, than it would be to do it all properly and have full consultation with the union. So the suggestion there is that because the law wasn't followed properly, workers can claim compensation. But beyond that, P&O would be off the hook. Speaking on Radio 4's Today programme, though, Beth Hale, an employment lawyer at CM Murray, had a stronger view. Is it within the rules? Probably not. Um, almost certainly not. What P&O seem to have done is offered um, compensation packages which purport to pay their way out of, the, of their legal obligations. Um, and in doing so, they, they have tried in an attempt to bypass their legal obligations. What they ought to have been doing is consulting with staff, um, consulting with the unions about potential dismissals, considering whether there are any suitable alternative roles, going through the processes. They also ought to have um, made a formal notification to the government about to the Secretary of State about the proposed dismissals when there were dismissals in this kind of number. That's a legal obligation. And so there's potential criminal liability for directors as well. So it's a big, I mean, it's an, it, potentially an enormous breach. Um, but what they purport to be doing, as I say, is paying their way out of it. So there does seem to be some legal ambiguity, at least in terms of the consequences for P&O. What does seem clear, though, is that P&O ferries were able to fire British workers when their French, Spanish and Irish counterparts kept their jobs. And there has been, there's been some suggestion this could be down to Brexit. The RMT General Secretary, in fact, mentioned that when speaking to LBC. But another possibility is that this is down to Britain's uniquely weak labour laws. It looks like P&O have been encouraging fired workers to reapply for their jobs through the agency it's using to replace them for less money and less security, of course. This fire and rehire tactic is perfectly legal in the UK. It was legal before Brexit. It's still legal now. In contrast, in France, workers have much stronger protections against fire and rehire. And in Spain and Ireland, it's downright illegal. Yeah, the Tory, the Tory uh, outrage is quite instructive, actually. You also had it with Natalie Elphick. She's the local MP. You know, she was at the demonstration, I think, earlier today. Uh, she was jeered 
And the, the, the Tories are kind of in a strange, it's a bit like inflation. They're, they're not meant to care about this stuff. You know, it's, their entire thing is leave it to the market. The state's not meant to get involved. Like with inflation, just get it down. You know, the state shouldn't be too active. For instance, you know, if we're worried about energy prices. No, we can't bring the energy companies into public ownership to ensure you get relatively stable prices for the consumer. That can only ever fail. We can never actually have an interventionist state to deal with problems. I think with, with this kind of stuff and with inflation, so with layoffs, uh, in, in quite strategic industries, you see it frequently. It's like steel or with P&O. The, the Tories know they're on incredibly weak ground. Um, and actually, even yesterday, had even Ian Dale, a failed Tory parliamentary candidate and a, a pundit with an LBC show, saying that you know the government should be considering nationalisation of P&O. And I, I, I do agree with that. Um, and I think for the Conservatives, they know they're on very weak ground here. They know there's a cost of living crisis. And as much as the pundits love to talk about Jeremy Corbyn, the two big reasons the Tories have their majority today, one is they were going to deliver on Brexit. The second is levelling up. They did capture a significant part of that zeitgeist, some of which also went to Jeremy Corbyn, which is about the economic status quo isn't working. It's time that the forgotten people, the left behind, those without a voice in politics, were finally listened to. And, and so on, stuff like this, they can't go missing in action, which explains this bizarre spectre of free market fundamentalists in the House of Commons pretending they give a damn about working people being replaced by agency staff, because believe me, they don't. That's the essence of Thatcherism. That's the essence of their political project. Of course they don't care. They have to pretend they care because now it's going to become an incredibly salient issue. I think Labour actually have been really good on this. You've seen, and I don't like to talk about this with the prism of Westminster politics, but it's been interesting to see Ed Miliband at demonstrations saying that you know government should intervene, or Carl Turner say things which are actually politically not nonsensical madness, which is what you normally get from his Twitter feed, or even Keir Starmer making some positive noises. It, it's the kind of issue, I saw some people um, uh, comparing it to the Gromwick strike, where it can actually polarize society in a really positive way. And we say, look, this isn't how we want to treat workers. We don't believe in fire and rehire. We want people to be in stable contracts where they're paid well, but also have security about what the future holds for them. I think, obviously, it's not good news for these workers because 800 of them could, could... I mean, we don't know how this ends, but it looks very bad for them right now. But I think more broadly, the politics of it are so unpopular, and that's why the Conservative Party are having to immediately present themselves as somehow not part of the problem, which they are. I think those, you know, you make that political point very well. One thing that I found particularly shocking about this story is that what they were hoping to do was sack all of these people on the spot and then within a few hours replace them all. So these ships were supposed to continue running that day, but with a completely different set of staff. And that requires a lot of planning. So they, they had to put mm -hmm. together this new set of staff to replace the old set of staff. And there was a interview um, on, on a BBC radio station of one of these people, and they had to keep it secret from them as well. So here is Mark Kane Baldwin. That's an, an, an agency worker hired by P&O, speaking to BBC Radio Humberside. This all started for me Friday a week ago. Um, I, I, I got onto one of the, uh, the agency company uh, websites, or on Facebook actually, and saw there were some jobs uh, going. I just finished doing some work for them on another ship, and... Um, got in touch with them because it sounded very exciting what they were saying, the agency, and, and 
they were saying that there was a new ship coming to British waters and it needed a full new crew. And they, uh, they said, could I be in Glasgow for last Monday? I said, that's fine. I said, what's the name of the ship and where is it sailing to and from? And they said, I'm sorry, we can't give you that information. So this guy got a job last week and then spent most of this week in Glasgow waiting. And then it gets even weirder. On Thursday morning, the agency workers were loaded onto a bus at 5.30 a.m. Even when we got on the bus, they wouldn't tell us where we were going. And we asked. So we're on our way there in this bus and we stopped in a Morrison's. And um, we thought, oh, good, a rest break. We'll get some breakfast because we're hungry. We, you know, haven't slept well in my case. And we've been up since 5.30 or catching a bus at 5.30. So we go into Morrison's and then there's 10 guys and, and two young ladies in there all dressed in black and looking very menacing and intimidating with handcuffs and whatever and having breakfast with us. That would be security guards hired to hassle the sacked workers. Eventually, the bus gets to the dock at Cairn Ryan, where they wait for hours. But then the funny thing about it, one of the guys that was with us, the agency guys, um, as we all were, as I've said, he'd, he'd actually just come off that particular ship three weeks ago. And um, so he had phone numbers uh, of you know people still on that ship. So we contacted them. We had to sort of do it on the quiet because the company men were still in the in the ship with us, yeah. uh, in the bus with us. And um, so we started getting reports that you know that that people are, are losing their jobs, and 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 we said, "Are you still on? You know, is this the ship?" And they're saying, "Yeah, we've been called into into their mess room or whatever on their ship, and they they were waiting for an announcement." So anyway. The, um, they moved us in through security into the dock area. So we're parked, I'm going to say, 100 yards at the most from the ship, the back of the ship, the stern of the ship. So we're, and so we're, we're in contact with these people on the ship, and, and then we hear we've all been fired. And, and it was just it was horrible. The, yeah. the feeling amongst the, the guys on, you know, we weren't bought on that bus to replace British people in their jobs. You know what I mean? It, we, that's us. That's us, you know. We're, we're British seafarers, and 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 that's that wasn't what we were told was going to happen. It's just so unbelievably evil, isn't it? Not only are you telling the existing workforce that you know they've lost their job on that day with immediate effect via a Zoom call, but you've created this whole you know parallel workforce who don't even know what they're doing. You know, you you heard at the end of that interview that guy didn't want to be you know, you'd often call scab labor. So someone who has been brought in to replace people who are on decent working conditions to to allow them to be fired without it causing any problem to the bosses. Now, the bosses hoped that would happen by these people not realizing the ship that they were getting on had previously been occupied, previously been manned by people who'd just been fired. They just said, oh, this is a new ship for you to for you to sail on. They only found out because they knew someone who was already on that ship. You know, so you could have had all of these workers get on that ship sail it away, they don't know that they're part of this incredibly cynical, brutal ploy by the bosses to sack people on decent pay and decent conditions and replace them with people on, on lower conditions with no respect whatsoever for people who have potentially worked on that ship for decades. And I think what this all crystallizes to me, Michael, is on the left we talk about a lack of public service ethos. You know, there is not a, a, a sufficient public service ethos. You get outsourcing, you get privatization. And what really is very dangerous for the body politic is that we don't take public service seriously. We don't reward it, right? You get nurses that are, are paid a pittance when they're doing some of the most important work out there or care workers. 
at the other end of the scale, you look at politicians, and the minute they can, they go running to work for lobbyists at three, four times more than they earned as MPs. But alongside public service, we've also lost something in the private sector, which might sound strange for a socialist to say. But these businesses, and, and look, there's always been scumbags trying to exploit workers, laying people off. But what's accelerated and intensified in recent decades is you have a new class of corporate wanker, there's another word for it, who go into workplaces, who go into work change agents, human resource innovators, and they are the ones tasked with doing this kind of thing, right? We're going to we're going to basically we're going to move to a more flexible uh, labor force within the organization. I'd love to see the person who's responsible for this in their LinkedIn page. And that that's a big thing now about sort of corporate governance. And of course, that's an outgrowth of shareholder capitalism. People aren't saying what's best for this business in five, ten, fifteen, twenty year timeframes. They're saying what's best for this business this quarter, the next quarter. So incredibly short term. The people responsible for this have probably a real Johnny come lately. I mean, I don't know for sure, but that's the general pattern. And they'll they'll move on. And you see this in the corporate governance of universities. Somebody comes in, they're on a huge wage, they fuck up loads of people's lives, they actually undermine the, the, the business's brand, they don't make long-term smart decisions, and then they piss off with loads of cash in their pockets. And this is not a smart way to run society. So I'm not defending business. I'm not defending the private enter, the private sector. That would be a very strange thing for me to be doing. But I think this kind of decision-making, it is so utterly short-sighted and shambolic. I think it speaks to a, a genre, a variant of capitalism, which has only really been around for the last 20, 25 years, which just sees people as utterly, not, not this or that person, everyone is utterly expendable utterly expendable. You want weekends and you want holiday pay and pensions and sick pay. Too much. Sorry. Yes, I know I'm on £200,000 a year and I, I spend holidays in the Maldives and God knows where four times a year, but that's not for the likes of you. That's just for people like me because I know best and I'm smart and I'm one of the good people. As a class of people sort of running the private sector in this country with outsourcing, with privatization, who are leeches fundamentally, and working people up and down this country, channeling money to shareholders and the FTSE 100 and the, and the big companies listed on this country's stock exchange or their overseas owners in the case of P&O Ferries. I mean, Christ, Michael, the, the, the parent company of P&O paid out, I think you said this earlier, a dividend of more than 200 million pounds in, in 2020. Okay, they said, well, we're in, we're in the red this year. Sorry, 100 million pounds. But again, it goes back to that short-term shareholder value thing. Well, okay, you were making loads of money one year, how about you don't cre create astronomical dividends and, and hold some of it back because bad things happen like pandemics, which obviously are a major problem for your business model, which is cross-border transactions and movement of people and goods. So this is a really bad way to run business. To go back to my previous point about the lack of public sector ethos, the lack of long-term planning within the private sector and the Tory party and what Thatcherism is, it's this. It is this. It's about not looking at somebody as a human being or a loyal employee for 20 years or 10 years who does their job really well and is really conscientious. It's about looking at them as an abstract unit of labor who can be removed for another unit, which is slightly more efficient. Forget retirement. Forget whether or not they can look after their kids. Forget the fact this is another human being. And that is the root of the economic model we presently have. So yes, the people running this operation in PNO are scumbags, but they are an avatar for a much bigger problem. Carillion, 
various private rail op- operators in this country, people like Richard Branson, they are the face of modern capitalism. You know, the second there's a problem, we're in the red this year, we've got to lay people off. Well, you have good years, you have bad years, you can't operate like that. And I think you're right, we need to uh, bring about laws in relation to fire and rehire. By the way, this could have happened when we're in the European Union. Anybody who's talking about Brexit as a result of this, rather than focusing on the evil misdeeds of P&O, needs to give their head a shake. This could have been done before we left, and it, 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 it can be done if we rejoin, for all the EU rejoiners out. This is about labour standards, and it's about legislating to ensure, inside or outside the EU, this can't happen again. We should also just add, I think, there is one sliver of you know, hope in this story. Obviously, you know, 800 people have lost their jobs. This is the big headline figure. But that account we showed you, that was a worker who was told what his paying conditions would be. He accepted that job. He was going to do that job until he discovered he would be replacing people who'd been brutally fired, right? So that is that is solidarity in action, isn't it? His conditions hadn't been changed by what he discovered. All he discovered was that him going and working on that ship would demonstrate a lack of solidarity with people who'd just been fired. And so he didn't take that job. So the the sliver of hope to take from what is a really awful and infuriating story. Let's go to our next story, another incredibly infuriating one. Racism has been found to be a likely motivating factor when police strip-searched a 15-year-old black child at her London school. That's according to an official investigation into the incident commissioned by Hackney Council. Details of the search, which took place in 2020, are reported in The Guardian. They write, No appropriate adult was present during the 15-year-old girl's ordeal, described by a senior local authority figure as humiliating, traumatising and utterly shocking, and which took place without parental consent and in the knowledge that she was menstruating. The child was made to bend over, spread her legs and use her hands to spread her buttocks while coughing and she is now in therapy and self-harming, according to family members' statements to the inquiry. The girl who is being called Girl Q was pulled out of her classroom while taking an exam and taken to a medical room where she was made to remove all of her clothes by two women police officers. The 15-year-old was also told to remove her sanitary towel. Afterwards, she was returned to her classroom where she was expected to complete her exam. The report by the City and Hackney Safeguarding Children Partnership says the search was prompted after teachers called the police. They say teachers told the review that on the day of the search, they believed Child Q was smelling strongly of cannabis and suspected that she might be carrying drugs. On questioning Child Q, she denied using or having any drugs in her possession. A search of her bag, blazer, scarf and shoes revealed nothing of significance. So the teachers found nothing but called the police anyway. That already seems a bit sus to me. And the cops turning up and strip searching the girl is a massive escalation. It's I mean, what could possibly justify such extreme action? Unfortunately, events like this are not rare. Zara Bay, co-founder of No More Exclusion, spoke to Good Morning Britain. As a teacher and as a parent and as a human being, I'm appalled that any child could be treated this way. And in fact, no one should be treated this way, but children in particular, and in particular in a place of safety, which is what schools are supposed to be. So I'm beyond, I feel beyond, I would say, rage this. about this and in terms of look, your question of how is this how could this have happened mm. Dal has already talked about the fact that there are 
a number of like systemic failures that happen in this case. And what is important about this case is, first of all, to say how horrific it was, mm-hmm. um, but it was only one out of 26 other searches that happened in that borough alone of Hackney mm-hmm. in one year, intimate searches that involved children. So it is systemic. And out of those 26 searches, 22 led to the police finding nothing. So there were 26 intimate searches of children in Hackney that year. We can imagine them all being incredibly distressing. Yet in 22 cases, nothing was found. On, on any measure you could use, how is that worth doing? It's creating so much trauma. For what? To find four people potentially with drugs. I mean, it's, it's, it's just appalling. It's also worth noting, of those 26 searches in Hackney that Bay is is referring to there, it turns out that 60% involved black children and only two involved white children. And it gets worse. A freedom of information request by academic Tom Kemp has revealed that the Met undertook 9,088 strip searches on children in the past five years. That includes 2,360 children under the age of 60. On average, five children were strip-searched every day by the Metropolitan Police. If we extrapolate from the racial breakdown of strip-searches on adults, we can also assume that strip-searches of children disproportionately affect black children. Tom Kemp, the, the academic I referred to earlier, tweeted, In the past five years, the Met Police conducted 57,733 strip-searches on black people. So 33.5% of strip-searches were conducted on black people when 11.7% of Londoners are black. And the report into Child Q's treatment concludes, Having considered the context of the incident, the views of those engaged in the review and the impact felt by Child Q and her family, racism, whether deliberate or not, was likely to have been an influencing factor in the decision to undertake a strip search. Now, from reporting we've done on this show in previous weeks, we shouldn't be shocked anymore by the Met's behaviour, but this whole incident, I mean, it's just so, so disgusting. There's one statistic which you didn't mention, which is that 35 children under the age of 12 have been strip searched by the Met. Under 12, Michael. I mean, I, I don't want to be sensationalist about this, but there is a word we use for people who ask children, particularly under the age of 12, to take off their clothes so they can inspect their person. There is a word for those people. And the, the Metropolitan Police Service employs tens of thousands of officers. You are going to have people in that organization who aren't good people. You, that's inevitable. That doesn't mean you, you don't, they, don't, they don't have the, the, the right accountability and scrutiny at the moment. And I'm not saying they can't make major improvements, but in an organization that bad, you're, you're going to have bad people who abuse their power. You're going to. The question is, what are the, what are the mechanisms in there to, to hold them to account and to minimize that? And I think giving, giving this kind of power to police officers to strip search children, how certain are you that the people executing this are, are, are people that could be trusted around children? It's a safeguarding issue. You know, Michael, if you want to go teach in a school, you, you want to do a talk, there are you know, reams of paperwork you need to fill out, good, to ensure that these kids are safe, that you aren't a predator. And yet we're allowing a police force with a, a documented history of racism and sexist violence, we're allowing these same people to strip search children. I mean, again, it's one of those things where I think we should, we should probably just ban it. You, you probably shouldn't allow the police to strip search 
somebody under 12, whether or not they've got a guardian present. I don't quite understand how that benefits anyone. And like you say, nine times out of 10, it's ineffective. Even if it was effective, I still don't think it's vindicated. And what are you going to find? A small amount of cannabis? And you're traumatizing a child for that? You're doing something which is tantamount, I think, to sexual assault for that, really? I mean, in terms of appropriateness, is that a, a transaction that we as a society think is worth doing? You might find some cannabis, so hey, go knock yourself out and go strip search a bunch of kids, which happen to be people of color in London. I, I, I don't think most people would agree with that. And again, you know, let's see how the Met responds to this in the next couple of weeks and months, but it's an organization which doesn't take criticism very well. These same people, the, the sort of moral arbiters of our society, the wonderful London Metropolitan Police Service, probably think, you know what, strip searching kids, even when nine times out of 10 is not effective, yeah, it's a good thing. Because that's the, that's the absurd, grotesque, moral vacuum these people operate in. They think it's normal because that's the working environment they're in. It's not normal. Strip searching kids is not normal. It's not normal way to carry on. You know, look at the, 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 the way that, for instance, Koshka Duff was treated. Older woman, 30, but the way she was treated by multiple officers, male and female, all willing to lie until there was evidence showing that they were in the wrong. She was so clearly abused by these people. Once her case got out into the public, people were like, wow, this is disgusting. It's disturbing. The police behave like that? But the officers involved all knew the facts. They don't think it's strange because that's the warped world that they behave in and, and they live in and they inhabit. So I think, again, it needs a strong fist from civil society, but I think it's going to have to come through politicians. Politicians need to say, look, this isn't acceptable. The problem in this country is, Michael, there is a, a really hideous relationship historically. It's changing, I think, for the better at the moment between the London Metropolitan Police Force in particular and the government of the day. You know, politicians do, don't criticize the police, but surely strip searching children is a step too far, even for these people. I hope it is. And I hope it catalyzes a much broader conversation around the kinds of powers we're willing to de delegate these people. I don't think there are any conditions under which you can strip search a 12-year-old. Sorry. I absolutely agree. I mean, it is worth noting. Yeah. So the people who searched this 15-year-old didn't find anything. All they were looking for was cannabis. You know, even if they found cannabis, even if they found, you know, enough cannabis that you could supply the whole of Hackney, that is, that is not worth putting someone through that. The police officers were there. The teachers were there. Everyone there knew that the worst case scenario that this girl had done was that she had some cannabis and they thought it was worth putting her through that experience. I do find that just, you know, worrying about the judgment of these people. These people should not be in positions of authority. Let's talk about the reaction, though, that Aaron, you intimated towards there, because people across the country have been outraged by the case. In London this afternoon, a protest took place outside Stoke Newington Police Station, and it turned into a blockade. And we can also look at the response from the government. This is Equalities Minister Kemi Badnock. The Honourable Lady also raised um, the case of Child Q, and I'm very happy to speak about that. I think it is an appalling incident. I'm glad to see that the Met has apologised. I'm glad to see that the um, independent, uh, independent Office of Police Complaints are looking at that. We have systems in place to ensure that when things go wrong, we can right them. What we cannot do is stop any bad thing from happening to anyone in the country at any time. That is a bar, a threshold that is impossible to meet. But what we, can, what we do know, what we do know is that everybody is rightly appalled and outraged by what happened to Child Q. Yeah. That is an example of a country that cares about ethnic minorities and about children in the system, and we will continue to do everything we can to support them. Yeah. 
So let me get this straight. What this horrendous incident shows isn't that Britain has a problem with racism, that two police officers and a bunch of teachers all thought it was acceptable to strip search a 15-year-old just because they smelled cannabis. That doesn't say that this is a problem with racism. Actually, the incident shows we are a country that cares about ethnic minorities. Aaron, can you make sense of what Kemi Badnock said there? Well, you just have to be in a very strange moral universe to think that sexual assault of a child is, is legitimate. And that's what this is. You know, one of the one of the good things about society, and we, we can moan and whine about all the bad things in the last 50, 60 years, one of the good things is that people are aware of how adults historically have exploited and abused children. And that's something now as a society we're trying to become more open about. And hopefully younger people can feel more able to, to divulge these things, which were were simply not spoken about and repressed in the past. And in that context of saying, well, look, this is one of the this is one of the really most fundamentally evil things you can do, right? Because you're not even dealing with a, a, a consenting adult. You're dealing with a child. They don't understand what you're doing. A child under 12, Michael, they don't understand. They, the idea that a police officer has the authority to do this over them and not their parent and the sexualized nature of it, demeaning them and how that intersects with race. Oh, my God. And this is your response. And my personal thing is, you, if you, look, this is why I would never be a police officer. If I had, if I was a police, a senior police officer, an officer said, "Yeah, we strip searched a nine-year-old kid because we could smell cannabis," I'd say, "What the fuck is wrong with you? Who, you know, who thought that was a good idea, right? You know, if you said, look, we, we, there was a, there was somebody and there was a, there was a murder and they're hiding a murder weapon. One in a minute, by the way, these realities don't exist. They only exist for police crime writers and you know people who write BBC series. They try and present that as the reality of law and order and policing. It's not. It's this." Right, that's the quotidian reality of law and order policing in London. Is police just sort of giving a bit of a hard time to young working class people of colour generally? That's what they do, and they say we haven't got the resources to uh, to, to solve crime. If you get burgled, you might get a police police reference number. If you're a squatter in Oleg Deripaska's house, oof, you're going to get a battering ram through the front door. Probably their colleagues uh, early that morning were, you know, strip searching a, a young person. So. This is a deeply dysfunctional institution, Michael. It's a problem in, in Britain in particular as well, because I feel like I feel like there is a huge space for a very sensible, pragmatic conversation around policing where we say we should abolish the territorial support group. Right? We should not have the police strip searching minors. Shouldn't be happening. These seem like quite sensible things. And I think whether you're a conservative, Lib Dem, Labour, old, young, I think there could be real consensus around that. And, and I think actually the debate right, right now around policing, particularly on the left, is we're saying abolition or whatever. I'm not saying those aren't s smart arguments, but I think we need to, you know, there, there are real wins here, right? This is, this is sexual assault of young people, right? Let, we can just stick to that. And it does betray a much bigger problem, Michael, with the Sarah Everard case, obviously with the, the well-documented history of racism in, in the London Metropolitan Police Service. You've got the, uh, the, the, the two sisters who, of course, died selfies being taken by the police. You've got the WhatsApp messages from, I believe, the Charing Cross Police Station, which were in circulation just a few months ago. There is a profound problem with the London Metropolitan Police Service. Root and branch change is needed. And that's not a left-wing thing. We probably should say, just because we're talking about individuals, Kemi Badenoch didn't say she supported what happened to Girl Q, but I take your general point that you know she's part of a government that thinks that strip searching children is a normal thing for the police to do. And this is one specific incident where it's gone wrong. So 
Yeah, I mean, well, I take I'll, I take the broader point. Back, I want to be careful what we're implying about Kemi Badenoch. No, but do they? What the police have done, as I understand it, doesn't appear to have broken the law. So, and, and the Tories want to keep the law the same. And that law is that right now, I think, like I say, I think it was last year, you have 35 children under 12 are strip searched by the police. And if that's a status quo the Conservatives are happy with, then that's their business. But that's that's what they want. They think that's acceptable. I don't. I think you don't. I think 99% of the public doesn't. Yeah, I don't think it was against the law. I think protocols were broken and they should have, you know, for example, told the parents. But yeah, I mean, obviously, completely disgusting what they've done in this case and disgusting what they do systematically to, yeah, as, as, as we say, particularly young black people. Strip searching people because you smell cannabis. It's, there is no justification for that in any possible reasonable world. Let's go to our final story, which does have an element of positivity about it for a change. The Telegraph has been forced to apologise to a former Corbyn advisor for defaming her in an article written by a former Labour MP. A statement in the Corrections and Clarifications section read, In an article, Rachel Riley deserves every bit of compensation for the hard left abuse she's endured, on the 23rd of December 2021, written by Ian Austin, we suggested that Laura Murray, a former staff member at the Labour Party, was an, quote, anti-Jewish racist and of the vile anti-Semitism of Corbyn's Labour, who had been stood up to by Rachel Riley during a recent court case. These allegations were and are untrue. We accept that there was and is no basis to suggest that Ms Murray is anti-Semitic. On the contrary, the court heard in unchallenged evidence that Ms Murray devoted significant time and energy to confronting and challenging anti-Semitism within the Labour Party while she was employed there. The Telegraph and Ian Austin apologised to Ms Murray. We have agreed to pay her substantial damages. Telegraph has, we understand, paid £40,000 in damages to Laura Murray. And if you recognise Ian Austin's name, it's perhaps because he went from being a Labour MP to being a prominent campaigner against the party at the 2019 general election. It's really come something when people like us have to say that we think Jeremy Corbyn is, look, I think he's unfit to lead the Labour Party. I think his leadership for the Labour Party has been a disgrace. And I think he's completely unfit to lead our country as well. It's really come to something when people like us, even people like us, say don't vote Labour. Now we know people like us, in that instance, meant people who are willing to smear people as anti-Semites without any evidence. In fact, when there's a lot of evidence to the contrary that this is someone who was actually very committed to tackling anti-Semitism, who Ian Austin was more than happy to dismiss as an anti-Jewish racist in the Telegraph. Even people like us, what a shock that someone like Ian Austin couldn't vote for a Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour Party. This is someone who is just so insincere, and as we can see here, very, very willing to smear people. Aaron, we're going to go through the context of the original Ian Austin article, because that's also interesting, an interesting legal case between Laura Murray and, in that case, Rachel Riley. But first, I want your thoughts on this apology from The Telegraph and from Ian Austin. They've done what they've had to do, Michael. It was an open and shut case. If they'd not apologised, it would have gone to a court. They probably wouldn't have had to pay more in terms of what uh, Laura Murray would have received, but the the, uh, legal expenses would have been into the hundreds of thousands of pounds. So they had no choice. In no way was it meant. And I, that, that's why I believe Michael's behind a paywall. I wouldn't really 
put much faith in the idea of Ian Austin uh, being particularly sorry. Yeah. Not going to give him a rethink, is it, of the way he, he behaves? Like, oh, maybe I should reassess. Maybe I should stop calling people anti-Semites so easily. As I say, let's look at the original case, which Ian Austin's initial article in December was referring to. It puts this current one in context. In that instance, Laura Murray had lost a libel case, that time against Countdown celebrity Rachel Riley. And this was a pretty odd case. We'll, we'll, we'll go through the background. So what you need to know, on the 3rd of March 2019, Corbyn was attacked and egged by a man in a North London mosque. The attacker would go on to get 28 days, days jail time. He was motivated by anger that MPs were holding up Brexit. On the day that attack happened, Rachel Riley tweeted this. So she's quote tweeting an old post from Owen Jones referring to BNP leader Nick Griffin being egged. Owen's tweet read, Oh, I think an egg was thrown at him, actually. I think sound life advice is, if you don't want eggs thrown at you, don't be a Nazi. Seems fair to me. Rachel Riley tweets, good advice. In response to that tweet, Laura Murray, then working for Jeremy Corbyn, said, Today, Jeremy Corbyn went to his local mosque for Visit My Mosque Day and was attacked by a Brexiteer. Rachel Riley tweets that Corbyn deserves to be violently attacked because he is a Nazi. This woman is as dangerous as she is stupid. Nobody should ever engage with her, ever. Now, what's weird about this case is that Laura Murray's tweet is not an unreasonable reading of Rachel Riley's one by any measure whatsoever. And in fact, this is something that even the judge recognised. In his ruling, he said, there is a clear element of provocation in the good advice tweet in the sense that the claimant must have readily appreciated that the meaning of the good advice tweet was ambiguous and could be read as suggesting, at least, that Jeremy Corbyn deserved to be egged because of his political views. But the reason Murray lost the case was that she hadn't linked to Rachel Riley's original tweet and therefore didn't give readers of her tweet the chance to see that her interpretation, so this is Laura Murray's interpretation, was just one of many. The judge said of Murray... I am satisfied that the defendant acted honestly. She made a mistake in the defendant's tweet by not including the good advice tweet. For not linking to Rachel Riley's tweet, Laura had to pay £10,000 in, in damages to Rachel Riley. But that is relatively small fry because Murray also has to pay Riley's legal fees, which are understood to be in excess of £1 million. So, Aaron, we're celebrating the fact that Laura Murray has, you know, got some justice in the case of Ian Austin calling her without any evidence an anti-Jewish racist. But in this previous libel case, or from this previous libel case, she owes Rachel Riley a million pounds. And that's for, or Rachel Riley's lawyers at least, a million pounds. And that's for a tweet which the judge himself recognised was an understandable and in fact obvious interpretation of what Rachel Riley had said. But, but he said, given that there were other interpretations of that tweet then she has to pay a million pounds. I mean, what does this tell us about Britain's libel laws? They're very, very odd, and you really shouldn't put any truck with them. And when people say, that, oh, you know, you should pros prosecute a libel case against this person, uh, it's not quite that simple. As I have found out, Michael, I've been on both, both sides of this. I've had numerous threats from people saying they're going to go after me with libel. One was um, Lindsay Crosby. Years ago, I ignored it because I was entirely in the right. Nothing happened. You know, they, they just throw out letters just to 
raise the costs, you know, disincentivize criticism of the, them on public fora from people like me. Not massive followings, but sig significant followings. And, you know, it's out there in the public. Um, it's a strange one because, like you say, what Ian Austin had done with The Telegraph was far worse than what Laura Murray had done to Rachel Riley. I didn't know the million pound figure with regards to the cost. I thought it was close to about half a million. I mean, equally, equally bad. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, but at the moment, Laura Murray is trying to appeal that. She might not have the right to appeal, in which case, obviously, obviously she will have to pay those costs. That's the best of my understanding of that right now. Now, here's what's really interesting with regards to the Laura Murray case with Rachel Riley. As I understand it, again, lots of caveats here, because we don't want to be sued by anybody. The lawyer representing Rachel Riley has a form of insurance, which means that on the downside, you know, they can, they can never really lose. So you have lots of positive incentives to follow these cases. You can make money. You can win for your client, which is great. But of course, for, for, for us mere mortals, a negative incentive is, well, if you lose, you're going to have to pay a bill of hundreds of thousands of pounds for legal costs, not just for yourself, but also your opponent. And Rachel Riley's lawyer has a form of insurance which basically insulates him from a lot of that downside. It's quite a unique arrangement. I would quite like to write about it for NavarraMedia.com, but again, some things uh, uh, can be legally quite difficult. So um, on this particular matter, yes, British libel law is appalling, and there's a reason why you have oligarchs from around the world doing legal tourism, seeking to have their day in court here in Britain because libel law is far more in favor of the millionaires, the billionaires, and the oligarchs in this country than in somewhere like the United States, where you have a statutory right to freedom of speech. So uh, we have very, very backwards laws in this case. Lawfare is an incredibly powerful tool for reactionaries and conservatives. Uh, and like you say, what a lesson when uh, Laura Murray wins a case, which is far bigger, and yet she, she could still be hundreds of thousands of pounds down. Uh, I, I hope it won't come to that. I hope she wins an appeal. But a good analogy for libel law, Michael, is you have the libel law in the middle, you have a cow being pulled from both sides, and, and the lawyer's just milking it. There are really no winners. Even in the case of Rachel Riley versus Laura Murray, the real winner is the lawyer. So yeah, a very ugly part of English law, English and Welsh law, and it needs to change. And it's certainly not in favour of the left. I understand from people quite close to it, it is in excess of, of a million pounds. That's what they're expecting at the moment. I understand that Laura Murray is, you know, she's she's attempting an appeal, but hasn't yet been granted the right to an appeal. So once you're granted the right to appeal, then you have, you know, essentially a, a new a new court case. So that that isn't happening yet. Um, the points you raised, though, are are important that it's not going to help the left. And I think the reasons are sort of numerous. What really matters here is legal fees. So we've said Laura Murray had to, well, unless this appeal goes through, has to pay damages of Rachel Riley of £10,000. Now, in that case, the judge recognised, it seemed to recognise that what Laura had done wasn't actually that bad. She tweeted, well, I don't think it was bad at all, obviously, but even from his perspective, what she tweeted was a very reasonable interpretation of what Rachel Riley had said, but because she hadn't linked to the tweet, it wasn't clear that there were other interpretations of what Rachel Riley had said. So this, is, this comes across as very, very minor, £10,000. Now, what Ian Austin did to Laura Murray, which is in a national newspaper, call her an anti-Jewish racist, with no evidence, and in fact, there was evidence to the contrary, that seems much more 
serious. That's that's not saying, oh, there's one interpretation there other. That's saying something which is, you know, demonstrably false. And that's the reason I assume that Laura Murray is entitled to £40,000 in damages, which is much higher than what Rachel Riley was entitled to because that was a, a bigger wrong had been committed. But as Aaron's saying, the real cost here is the lawyers. So Laura Murray, even though in this case, you know, she was wronged more than Rachel Riley was wronged, she has to pay in excess of a million pounds for legal fees. And the real problem with libel law is that unlike in criminal law, there's no whatsoever consideration by the judge of the income or the assets of the person who is being told to pay those fees. There's no cap on those fees and there's no legal aid. So if you get accused of libel, either you have to pay all of your own legal fees and then potentially pay a million pounds of your very rich person who's taking you to court, or you have to concede at the very beginning. And that's why so many people concede at the very beginning. And you're in a complete catch-22 if they will only settle with you if you you know cough up 10 grand. You don't have 10 grand, so you have to actually go to court. At the end of that court case, you end up owing some high-flying lawyer a million quid. Like it is, all it does is, is, is weight sort of our media environment and our social media environment towards the super wealthy who can, who can afford to play these games because no one else really can. Let's wrap up there. Um, Aaron Bastani, thank you for joining me tonight. Michael, I just want to say one quick thing. Is that okay? Yes, you, I would love that. For the people watching this, and you're on the left and you're young and you're smart, you're ambitious, become a media lawyer. The left needs more libel lawyers, Michael. And look, as we've just said, you can make yourself a hell of a lot of money uh, suing right-wing figures. If I had my time back, Michael, as much as I love Navarro Media, if I was 19, I think I'd be licking my lips. That is a very good piece of advice. Give us a commission if you do go into that. Or just represent us, to be honest. That would be good enough. Thank you all for joining us this evening. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com slash support.